Well, good morning. This morning we are celebrating the most central of all Christian doctrines, but perhaps also the least understood. I'm talking about the Trinity. On the church calendar, today is Trinity Sunday. And the word Trinity is an extra-biblical word used to describe the identity of God as he is revealed to us in the Bible. The New City Catechism, the, the catechism we are using to shape the lives and minds of the children at First Presbyterian Church, asks the question, how many persons are there in God? And the answer it provides for that question is, there are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance and equal in power and glory. The Christian God, therefore, is a Trinitarian God. One God, yet three distinct but co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no other God. And yet Christians typically avoid conversations about the Trinity. We'll, play, we'll pray Trinitarian prayers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but don't make us try to explain why it is significant that our God is three in one. And some of that's understandable because of the sheer mystery of this reality. We don't know of anything or anyone who can sufficiently compare to a Trinitarian God. We try to find parallels in substances like water by pointing out that it can exist as a, a liquid uh, ice or steam, yet still remain H2O in each form. Or we talk about a cube having three dimensions, length, height, and depth. But all analogies break down at some point, though, and either insufficiently or incorrectly represent God and his triune nature. But the need to speak accurately about God remains. Because true worship demands that a worshiper possess knowledge of the one she worships. True love requires that the lover know his mate. It would be a curious and concerning thing if a husband couldn't tell you, say, the name of his wife's parents or whether or not she had siblings. Knowledge of the other is a fundamental requirement for all relationships. And it's important that Christians at least be able to answer the New City Catechism's question, how many persons are there in God? But as important as it is that we be able to get that answer right, it's perhaps even more important that we understand the significance that our God is a Trinitarian God. What difference does it make in our lives? And this morning, I want to suggest that, the God, that, that God's triune nature is tremendously significant for our lives. Indeed, I will argue that God's existence as Trinity is the only way in which humanity is restored to the purpose for which we were created in the first place. Every person, whether actively or unconsciously, strives to answer the existential question of purpose. Why am I here? What is the point of life? The way the Bible answers that question is summarized neatly for us in the first question and answer of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question, what is the chief and highest end of man? In other words, what is it above all other things that humanity was created to do and to be? Answer, the chief and highest end of man is to glorify God 
and fully to enjoy him forever. Worship. Worship is the Bible's answer for humanity's questions about purpose. We were created to worship God, to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever. The Bible speaks of worship not in the narrow sense that many think of it today, as though only singing is worship, but much broader terms. Worship is communion with God and participation with him in this world and all that we do. We see this illustrated in the opening chapters of the Bible, where humanity spoke directly without God and without any need for a mediator. There was intimate communion between creator and creature. They lived in his peaceful presence and participated in his plan for creation. Human beings were creation's gardeners. God gave them authority over everything else in the world in order to maintain and expand the order that he had created out of the chaos. Everything they did was a response to his initial movement of grace towards them. All of life, therefore, was an act of worship. Even the rhythm of the work week reflected this understanding of the purpose of life. For six days, humanity worked, but on the seventh, they rested from their work. By leaving their work on the seventh day and turning to God in rest, it was as if they were laying it at, all at his feet and offering themselves and their work to him. They were working for his glory and not for their own. But we were not, and still aren't, satisfied with God's glory alone. We wanted, and still want, all the glory there is to be had. So we chose to pursue our own ends rather than his. Rather than creation being the means through which our worship was communicated, Creation became an end in and of itself. We valued creation over the creator, and the creator was saddened and offended by our rebellion and our abuse, or at least disordered use, of his good creation. And the result was that worship, the reason why we were created in the first place, this communion and participation with God became complicated. We were thrust out of the garden and out of God's presence so that we could no longer deal directly with him. We needed a mediator now. In our relationship with the physical world, the means by which our worship of God was expressed became frustrated. The earth put out weeds as if it refused to participate in our rebellion or to be used as a pawn in our pursuit of vain glory. In turn, we constructed our own ends and unjustly pressed creation into our service. The physical world, our own bodies even, which was once the avenue of our worship of God, became disenchanted in our eyes and is now merely a substance to carve up and abuse according to our own disordered desires. Desire and choice are now sufficient to establish purpose on their own. And it's no wonder we are incredibly confused about the purpose of life. It changes as frequently as our desires, and we can't keep up. But God, being merciful by nature, gave his people the means by which they might worship him and still fulfill their purpose in life despite their rebellion. 
And the system of worship he established was insufficient and only temporary because it was intended to prepare us and make us long for the full restoration of our identity as worshiping beings in communion and participation with God. At the heart of this system of worship, though, was a sacramental view of the world. Physical creation was restored to its intended role of being the means through which we might offer spiritual worship to God and in turn be drawn further into communion with him. A connection between heaven and earth, between the physical and the spiritual, was reiterated. For God's people living under the Old Covenant, that is, those who were living during the time recorded in what we call the Old Testament, this sacramental view of the world found its highest expression in the sacrifices offered by God's people. There were elaborate rituals established around the sacrifices of God's people in the Old Covenant. Only certain animals or crops could be used. Only certain people could offer the sacrifices, and they could only be offered in one place, the temple. When the sacrifice was an animal, it had to be killed and cut up in a specific way. And certain sacrifices had to be offered at appointed days throughout the year. It was all very prescribed. But this sacramental worship of God preserved the meaning and importance of worship for God's people. The worship of God's people and offering sacrifices was intended to restore humanity's communion with God and restore us to our position as God's participants set in this world to live out of response to his grace. Therefore, when a person sinned, they offered a sacrifice in order to mend their broken relationship with God. But they also offered a sacrifice of fruit and wheat at the beginning and end of the harvest season in order to remind themselves that God is the source of all things and that our work is done merely in response to his grace towards us. Our work on earth, our engagement with the physical world, is more than the mere movement of matter to accomplish some secular purpose. It's intended to be worship that draws us further into communion with God. But the problem for God's people under the Old Covenant was that the blood of bulls and goats was insufficient to actually bring them into full communion with God. The worship of God's people was anemic. As I said earlier, the system of worship under the Old Covenant was insufficient and only temporary. But the triune God set out to fulfill the system around 2,000 years ago. When the Son of God became a human being to represent us in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Humanity had offended God, which meant that human blood must be spilled, not the blood of an animal. But all human blood was impure, tainted by sin. Only a perfect human being was sufficient to settle our our offense, but only God is perfect. A God-man was therefore necessary to restore humanity to our proper place of worship, the purpose for which we were created. Only Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, could reconcile us to God and restore us to our position as his participants in this world, engaging the physical world in ways that are holy and according to his design. J.B. Torrance, in his book, Worship Community and the Triune God of Grace, writes, The prime purpose of the incarnation in the love of God is to lift us up into a life of communion and participation in the triune life of God. 
And the author to the Hebrews tells us that this was exactly the work that Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, accomplished on our behalf. In his humanity, he went before us into the heavens, where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Hebrews 8 tells us that he is not inactive there, but that he is ministering before God on our behalf, as though he were our priest, because that's exactly what he is. Jesus is a priest who offered a sufficient and final sacrifice on behalf of his people when he offered himself on the cross. Through faith in him, we are covered in his blood, filled with the Spirit, and admitted entrance back into communion with God the Father. As Hebrew 10 says, we may now draw near to the Father with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus brings us back into communion with God the Father so that we can speak with him as Adam and Eve spoke with him in the beginning. He hears our prayers offered in Jesus' name. And when we do not know how to pray as we ought, the Holy Spirit within us speaks on our behalf, realigning our ignorant requests with the will of God. Again, Torrance writes, The God to whom we pray and with whom we commune knows we want to pray, try to pray, but cannot pray. So God comes to us as man in, in Jesus Christ to stand in for us, pray for us, Teach us to pray and lead our prayers. God in grace gives us what he seeks from us, a life of prayer, in giving us Jesus and the Spirit. And it's not just prayer, because all of our worship is restored in Jesus Christ. He is the initiator and forerunner of our worship, so that all of our actions are merely reactions to him. We are baptized into his baptism. We eat and drink the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Jesus as the one who went before us into death and was raised. Sacraments are not an expression of our own decision, but a participation in what Jesus has already done for us. Baptized into him, eat him who has gone before us. The triune God has collaborated to to draw us back into communion with himself and restore us to the place of participation. We've been drawn in in order to be sent back out into the world, not to use the world as an end to satisfy our own desires, but as a a means to worship him. We participate in the sacraments and we view the world before us sacramentally. The physical has spiritual implications. What we do in the body matters. For our actions are only reactions to his prior grace. The natural rhythm of life is one of response, which frees us up from the pressure of having to determine our purpose in life. The Father has already decided that for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the bestowal of the Holy Spirit. We are worshiping worshiping beings who have been restored in order to enjoy our communion with the triune God and to live in this world as his gardens. Viewing all of our work and interaction with the physical world as inherently bearing a transcendent aim. Our chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. May we find ourselves in him, 
as we are caught up in the redeeming love of our triune God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.